Hello and welcome everyone to another InventRight live stream. My name is Andrew Krause. I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key uh, about 22 years ago now. We're going to be talking about licensing. If you guys can type your questions into the chat box, questions box, comments box, whatever the heck you want to call it, that would be great. Um, so one of the things that I like to cover while we're waiting for some more people to show up is um, what licensing is. I always like to cover that at the top. And if you watch the recordings of these Q&As, you can just fast forward a few minutes past that because I try to cover this at the beginning every time. Um, when you license, it's their money. because you're. So when I say they, who's they? Well, you don't license to a retailer. You license to a manufacturer that sells at a retailer, right? So, and that manufacturer or brand, if you will, um, they have unlimited money for a product that sells well. Usually these large companies, they have lines of credit. Um, and so if for a product that sells well, even if they didn't have the cash, they could borrow the money to keep the business, you know, going because your product is selling so well, or they got a bunch of products that are selling really well. So you don't need money. It's their money, not yours. So you don't need to raise money. People go, oh, how can I raise money? Where can I get venture capital or whatever? I'm like, well, when you're licensing, you don't need it. Because that big company that you license it to for royalties, they're going to invest their money. And then they're going to use their workforce. So sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising. So um, they've got a machine and it is quite a machine. I mean, when somebody has a company has 50 products, a couple hundred products, maybe a, maybe six, seven hundred products depends on the size of the company. Um, they they everybody is doing their job. And so they're very efficient because they have so many products. They have a methods for doing all these things. And when you plug your product in, now you are that big company or your product is that big company's product. So they're handling things very efficiently and it gives them economies of scale too. You start your own business, you need account, you need manufacturing guy and a sales guy. They're very inefficient because they're not handling so many products. Okay. So you're tapping into existing money and existing workforce. You don't need to hire a single employee and then you get it paying royalties. So every quarter, every three months, I would say 98% of the deals we do, you're getting paid your royalties quarterly every three months. So as they make money, you make money. And what they're doing is the biggest thing, benefit of licensing is tapping into existing distribution. So if they're in 30,000 stores, boom, you're in 30,000 stores. Now, not every products, every single one of their, comp their, their products is in every retailer they're in. I get that. But you have, you can think big and I kind of joke, you can have delusions of grandeur and you're not delusional when you're licensing because for that company to sell 50,000 units or for that company over there to sell half a million units, that's what they do. And then you're getting a royalty on every unit. But for yourself to start a business and sell half a million units a year, that's, that's really tough. And I admire people that do it, but it's very, very tough. And so you can, I joke, you can have delusions of grandeur and you're not delusional because they're, they're not huge things for these big companies to do, but they would be uh, huge things for you to do if you're on your own. Let's put it that way. Um, so we got some questions coming in. I'd like to see some more. I only got one. Um, thank you guys for confirming you can hear me. You never know if the mic is working. Pull it up a little bit there. That should be good enough. Um, sorry, it's like I'm shaking the table. It's like, ah. uh, <laughs> hi, uh, John said, hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for doing these. I really look forward to the show. It helps me answer so many questions. That's great. 
John. Fantastic. Um, Jeff's on, P-Dub's on. Crowd's kind of small so far. I don't know if people are still thinking it was at 410. Because um, like I think last time we were on here, I think I had like we had almost 70 people on here last time. It was pretty cool. Um, Robert said, if we're making a LinkedIn profile to connect with manufacturers, what would you put in your bio? It doesn't seem to be professional. Put my regular work or leave it blank. Um, yeah, I don't think you need to put your your regular work. I mean, sometimes people, they use LinkedIn to find a job and they might be doing both. But what I recommend is, you know, I really think that you can use the word inventor, but product developer, we've been talking about this in InventRight for, for decades. Companies know what product developers are. Sometimes people have a weird idea of what an inventor is. They might have a conjure up these images of somebody in a tinfoil hat or something like that. Um, so using, I would recommend using product developer on your profile instead of inventors. So you're asking about what's professional. Um, I think if you have your work history, I think that's fine. Um, and I think you just have a little, little bio and you say product developer and, you know, you put in your profile. So you don't need to go out and file a fictitious business name statement or something, but so let's see, it's um, Robert. So let's Robert, let's say your last name's Smith and you put in your edge, not your education, your work history, Robert Smith designs. And you put that you've been, you know, you, you develop and license products. So having a little company profile, you don't have to have a company page up and you've been doing this for so many years and you develop and license products. And you really, you know, let's be honest, let's say, Let's say you've been dreaming up ideas for eight years, right? Um, and But you're only now actively reaching out on LinkedIn, reaching out on the phone and reaching out to actively license your products. Well, you can you can put that you've been doing it for, this, for the last, let's say, five years or something like that. That's fine. You're not being dishonest about it. You've been dreaming up ideas. You just haven't gotten to the stage where you're reaching out to companies yet. So, and if you have your other work history doing those two things, I don't think that's unprofessional. The, the thing is, What's really cool about the United States is they just, in the United States to this day, there's this feeling like anybody can make it, right? And I think that's lacking in some other countries. So sometimes um, I'll have students in other countries and they're just in disbelief that a marketing manager for this big company would talk to me. It's like, well, I don't have any employees. I don't have an office. I don't have all this, but they only care about your idea. So I explain to them the American um, psyche that, that yes, this person is working in a corporation, let's say you're a marketing manager and that's the person you're approaching. Um, but there's this belief that anybody can make it. We love those stories. Americans love those stories. And so do people from around the world. So, and it's true. So the thought that, um, Robert, if you're, let's say you're, um, let's say you're an AC tech or HVAC tech or, you work in an office or whatever to have that history alongside that you've been doing this as well, that you work, you develop and license new products. Um, I don't think anybody's going to look down on, upon that. Be proud of who you are, be who you are. Don't try to be somebody fake. That's perfectly fine. And what I've found is over the last 22 years, they really just care about your idea. They're not buying you. You're not going to become their business partner where they have to worry. You're going to go spend money. Um, or steal post-it notes or something. That's not how it is, you know. You're not. They they they're keeping you a little bit of an arm's distance in that 
you're not, they're not bringing you into the entire business where you're going to be at board meetings and stuff like that. You know, that's not happening. They just need your idea and they, they, they will deal with you in that way. And they want to work. And don't get me wrong. They might go, Hey, so what do you think? Like we're a little, we had some feedback from retailer. They didn't like this or that. And you're like, Oh, I got a solution for that. And so they want you to be involved quite often and stuff like that. I got a fix for that. I can do, we can do it differently. Maybe we could do this or that. So, but you're not going to be going to board meetings and like hanging out and doing lunch with them all the time and stuff like that. So um, they don't need to know that you're so professional or perfect that you have years of experience and you're a captain of industry. Not at all. They need to know that you're a creative person that um, has creative ideas for good products that make sense to consumers and are things that um, having their employees working in corporate America doesn't ex exactly stimulate creativity in most corporations. There's exceptions that you have that special something that they don't have. They've got the workforce. They've got the ability to plug ideas out there very quickly and do a great job. But, um, but they don't have as much creativity quite often. And you're their free research and development department. They only have to pay you if they like the idea. It's like, now, some companies are worried that inventors will get weird on them, say you stole my idea and stuff like this. They're more afraid of you than you are of them. Um, and some companies, due to that, don't accept outside ideas, which is sad. Or they they get too many that aren't good. But, you know, if it's just one out of however so many, that one product could make them a lot of money. So smart companies are still open to innovation and what I've found over the last 22 years, we're over like kind of ahead of the curve here because we've been doing this for 22 years, is that um, companies are more, were companies as open to outside products as they are now 22 years ago? No, Stephen and I at InventRight were the co-founders. We were way ahead of the curve there as far as guiding people to do this. But it's, it's better than ever. And I only see it getting better. And yeah, there are some companies that close their doors. There's a few hardware companies that have closed their doors. But I've also talked to people that have gotten behind the scenes and gotten to those hardware companies. And that there's so many more that have opened their doors. So it is a great time to be licensing. Um, and I, I think it's perfectly fine to have your LinkedIn profile, Robert. Have some of the other stuff you're doing, too. If, you got, if you're a teacher or a construction person or whatever. You can have that in your profile as well. If, you, if you're if you not using LinkedIn for looking for jobs and stuff, you can leave that out if you want. You could just say, you know, um, product developer at such and such company. And just if your name's, I don't know what your last name is, Robert. Let's just say it's Smith, just to, for, for an example. Uh, Robert Smith Designs, last five years designing and licensing products. You can just keep it at that. If you're only using LinkedIn for licensing, you don't have to include all that other stuff. And you could just stick to um, your product development career as an inventor. That's perfectly fine. So hopefully that makes you feel better. I went uh, on pretty long on that, but I think it's a, something that a lot of the rest of you are thinking about as well. Um, okay, uh, Bet, Betley said, thank you for this uh, first live, live one I've caught. Okay, great, welcome. I just found out about InventRight last week and all the content has been amazing. So that's great. I mean, we have, I don't know, it's coming up. I don't quote me on this. I think it's coming up on somewhere between six and 700 YouTube videos. So make sure to check those out. The old ones are just as good as the new ones in a lot of ways. It's, it's, it's a lot of stuff hasn't changed, but we do cover new stuff 
in newer videos. So um, thank you. Um, is that their handle is Betley. So uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's thank you for that. Um, P Dub says, is a PPA supposed to? Let me see. It jumped up there. Is is a PDA supposed to, a PPA provisional patent application is what a PPA is for those of you new. Um, supposed to be like your dream vision of your product with all the bells and whistles, aka workarounds, improvements, and max features. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's not, you just have to write a few words or include a new picture. You should include those variations, workarounds, improvements, differences, and it could be the max version with all the features. It might not be the version that you show the company, if you if you try to show a company in your marketing piece, like it could be these 20 different ways. No, you got to pick a way and it's like this and this is how you're going to sell it. But you can cover all those variations and you might later talk, P-Dub, about those variations. Um, if they're like, well, we really like this, but we're concerned about this. You're like, oh, I've got a solution for that. Um, so, yeah, uh, let's see. So Francis says, can you work with two companies with the same with the same project for security of the product to succeed? Um, possibly, but here's what Francis's question is. I know what he's getting at. Um, sometimes people think, well, oh, you know, if I license it to five companies around the world, I'll make more money than licensing to this one company. But the truth is, the vast majority of the time, you're going to license it to one company. And because they want an exclusive, they want something that other people don't have. And to think you're going to license the exact same product, let's say these eyeglasses, and, you're, and it has some unique feature, hinge, or whatever. And so you're going to license that exact same product to two companies selling at the Walmart Vision Center, right? doesn't make sense. They're both competing with each other. It makes no sense. Now, you can break it out. This doesn't apply quite often, but it does apply sometimes. Maybe it's a different version of the product, cheaper version, more expensive, different version. Maybe it's for a different market. And it's going to work slightly different. So different from a geography standpoint, different from the feature standpoint, different from the quality level, different distribution channel. But the, the, the litmus test is if they're not stepping on each other's toes, it's okay. And you shouldn't give them the rights worldwide for all these variations when they just want it for this one area in the United States and for this one market. But you've got some other variation of the invention where it could be sold in a, in a different place and it's not going to hurt them. Okay. But if it's going to hurt them to say you want to license it to two companies um, and see which one of them succeeds and they're selling the same place, you'll just never be doing that deal <laughs> because, uh, the first company won't agree to it to leave that open because they're going to want an exclusive. Okay. There are exceptions, but you know, if this company's selling crazy volume because they're big and they're in major retailers, don't be so freaking greedy because that is greedy and it's not reasonable. And if you do things like this, you will kill deals. You work hard and you'll get to that deal and you will kill it. And they'll be like, what is this guy thinking? He's not, he's nuts. You know? Um, so, but does that mean that you can't break it out, different types of products, different geographies, different, you, you absolutely can. But the majority of time when our students ask us that, I look at it, I'm like, no, nah, pretty much is what it is. You're going to be licensing this to one company unless you're licensing other countries that they don't sell. Um, 
But then other times I'm like, oh yeah, you could break this out. And I'm like, this isn't one product even. This is like three products. And you, these guys would want it for this. And these guys would want it for this. These one, it'll be three different lists of potential licensees. I see that without a doubt. But but to think like it's an insurance policy, a license of two companies selling the same place, it just doesn't make sense. So, um, but it's a great question, Francis. Every I guarantee you, Half of the people here were thinking the same thing or they weren't thinking it, but they're like, well, that makes sense. I'm going to hear Andrew tell me why it doesn't, but it can. So, but most of the time it doesn't. Um, Betley's uh, is the handle is a video. And guys, if you don't mind, if you, if you want to, you don't have to type in your first name so I can address you by your first name uh, is, Oh, and the other thing I wanted to share is everything that we, I talk about on these, these uh, live streams is not, um, don't share anything confidential. Nothing is to be considered legal advice. I have to say this. Consult your attorney if you need legal advice. Don't consider anything legal advice. Um, is a video a good substitute for a sell sheet? Uh, yeah. A lot of our students will just do a video instead of a sell sheet. We refer to it quite often as a video sell sheet, just the terminology we use here inside InventRight. Um, this is what I can say. Some and then some students will do, the coach will them. nah, you know, we should do a sell sheet and there'll be a link to the video in the sell sheet. And by the way, um, this is a great tip for some of you that are new. Um, quite often, the, you, you never want to publicly, you don't want to public, when you're licensing, there's no reason to publicly disclose your invention. So putting up on a public YouTube video is public disclosure. But if you make it unlisted, unlisted, and people are, are private, but you don't want to use private because then you need their YouTube username. That's clunky. People don't know their YouTube username. I bet most of you guys don't know your YouTube username. Maybe the only reason why you do is because you're on here and you're looking at it right now. So you don't want private. You want unlisted. So essentially, people only people with a link can see it. Nobody can Google it or search it on YouTube and find it. Can that marketing manager you send it to share it with somebody else? Yeah, but you want them to do that. You want them to share it within the company to go, hey, look at this. This is cool. So, and it's an unlisted, that's a tip, YouTube video. When you upload a video to YouTube and link to it in a sell sheet or just link to it in the email you send, you want to make it unlisted. And that way nobody can see it except for the people you send the link to. And so when you have this really long URL link, that's essentially a password. You know, that's more or less what that is. So they just don't need to enter the password. So one thing that I'll say in that, just going a little on a tangent, but pretty much on the same subject is don't send people to a website where they need to enter a username and password. They don't have the freaking time. Well, Andrew, why wouldn't they? I want to see that they logged. Well, you, they'll, you'll see that somebody clicked on it. You can even look at the um, you can look at the stats on YouTube. If you go to your user account, you can see, oh, some company in Maine clicked on this three times. And you're like, oh, I know who that is. That's that company. You know, and you can kind of it doesn't show you exactly who it is, but you can kind of figure it out. So, um, but to ask people to enter username and password, they won't do it. I mean, even sending a people link to a website, they don't have time for that. They just don't have time for that. Websites suck. You know, they need to get your product in six to 10 seconds. So going back to the, the prior question, um, uh, yes, a video sell sheet's great. A sell sheet's great. Sometimes our students do both. But sometimes the sell, the video is just perfectly fine. Other times it's like, you don't need to do a video on that. Just do the sell sheet. Sometimes it's the sell sheet and you don't go into all the detail in the video, but it kind of um, helps support the sell sheet. Um, and other times it's like, yeah, you know, there's things to describe here that are going to be better done in the video. And then other times you'll do both. So hopefully that was helpful. Um, 
uh, Wade said, how would you market an invention overseas? Well, when you license Wade, you're not marketing. Well, that's a good question. You, you are marketing. You're showing how them how they're going to market. You probably meant sell. How would I sell an invention overseas? So you approach companies overseas, just like you approach companies in the U.S. and in Canada. And you, you send them a sell sheet or you send them a video like Betley was talking about. And that is to help them understand your product in six to seven seconds so they can show interest or say, oh, not a right match for us. But you want them to understand it very quickly. So it's no different. Um, in a roundabout way, again, everything I share is not considered legal advice. There's one video I did with um, with a patent attorney talking about this. So in a roundabout way, filing a U.S. provisional, the U.S. is what's, and you don't need to memorize all this, guys, but I can give you a little feeling for it. There's something called a PCT. It's called a Patent Cooperation Treaty. The U.S., Canada, all European countries, tons of companies are part of Patent Cooperation Treaty. And so in a roundabout way, when you file a U.S. provisional, it's in some ways not going into detail. This is not legal, so consult an attorney, but you're creating a provisional patent. You're preserving your rights to file in other countries in some ways, because what you could do is file a PCT and then, sorry, file a provisional patent application, PPA, and then go, oh, I got some traction from this European company, and then you could file a PCT. But more than likely, you could probably just get them to do the deal and file in the and give you the money to file in the countries you want to file. And you might not even need to file um, the, the PCT. But um, so what I'm saying is in a roundabout way, the PPA is giving you a bit of a placeholder. I'm not going to go into specifics to later file in these other foreign countries. Um, it's not technically a provisional patent in these countries because most Euro European countries, they don't have a provisional patent like we do. Um, so now in Australia, they have like, a couple types of provisional patents, which is a trip. But to go around and file international patents is incredibly expensive. It's just not a good use of your money. And again, that's not legal advice. So consult your attorney. Um, so, but you can, and, and we have way, way less deals our students do with European companies that are just in Europe. Now, I consider a European company that's huge in the U.S. to be like an American company because they're big in the U.S. market. Um, so they're used to American standards and things like that. And the American provisional patent is important to them, maybe, maybe not, because they want to file a patent in the U.S. And they, they might even say, like, ah, we sell 80 percent of our product in the U.S. and only 20 percent in Europe. We want to we want the royalty. We want to pay you a royalty to license it in Europe, too. But we're not even going to bother with patents there because you know, it's just not, we don't, we're not going to file patents on every product we work on. And that trips people out, but they want to file a U.S. patent because it's a bigger market for them. Now it might be the other way around. It's only 20% in the U.S. and 80% in Europe. Usually it's more in the U.S. But um, so, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's to market your invention overseas. You approach them with a sell sheet which is a one-page advertisement for your product or a video sell sheet, just like you do anywhere else. And you'd want to file a, a provisional patent application and you want to see if these interests. But I'll tell you, it's you're less likely to get interest from a company that's exclusively in Europe than a company that's in Europe and the U.S. or just the U.S. Um, way less likely. But that doesn't mean you don't try. Now, like we have a lot of our InventRight students are, are in Europe. And I, well, the ones that I get to talk to, I always tell them, they're like, well, I'm going to be submitting here in England, right? I'm like, well, yeah, but 
you would never want to limit yourself to England. England's still a little old school. It's, it's gotten a little bit better. Um, but some of those, remember earlier I talked about how Americans, we believe that anybody, the little guy, person doesn't have a college education, the little guy can make it. And that's the marketing managers in the companies here. It's part of their psyche. So they're like, they're not analyzing your LinkedIn going, oh, this guy's an HVAC tech. He came up with this product. I wouldn't deal with him. He's not a professional inventor, you know, or he's not, he's not a, um, a company. But some of the European countries still to this day, the people are like, who are you? You're an individual? What? You don't get that as much. And it's gotten actually much better in England. But it's still pretty bad in Australia. And Australia is the most creative in the world. So I go, don't just focus on your home country. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a big country, but it's, a, um, it's, a very, it's not that many people in Australia. So you wouldn't want to limit yourself to that market. And you wouldn't want to limit yourself if you're in a particular European country to uh, companies that are just selling in that country. Now, if that's the only deal you can get on the table, I would go for it. But, and again, I consider European companies or Asian companies that are really big in the U.S. and have huge distribution offices, headquarters there. I consider them to be American companies because there's Americans working there and there's really no difference. And and then when you're doing the deal, you ask them what their intentions are. They're like, no, we're just doing this for the U.S. market. I'm not, we're not going to bother with Europe. Or, oh yeah, we're going to put it in Europe too. And don't think that they have to file patents to there to want to sell it there. It's not true because a lot of companies sell products and they don't have patents on them. Um, uh, and Anil Bonnie, I think is the name. Hi, Andrew. Question. If they uh, look at a company's website and they accept outside submissions, or if you do, I guess, should I still call them to let them know that I've submitted my idea to them? Yeah, I, I, I would say if a company has a submission portal, I would go ahead and submit to that. But I would also, why not reach out to a marketing manager? I mean, if you reach out to a couple marketing managers or one and they're like, no, 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 can't send it to me because you're going to ask permission before you send it. Got to go through the portal. Okay. But if they're like, oh yeah, send it on over, you know, is, might that be better? Is it probably better than whoever's looking at the portal? Probably. So that's perfectly fine um, to do to both. I mean, it's not like the thought that somebody's going to call you and yell at you, oh, why did you submit through our portal and you also sent to Bob? You're wasting our time. Why are you doing that? And they're, they're, they're not going to know what one hand's doing, the other hand's doing. It doesn't matter. So I would absolutely submit to them on LinkedIn or the phone or the website. And they might say when you call them, no, no, you got to submit through the website and just say, okay, and you take an opportunity. What's if they're if they don't have it on their site and they're like, oh yeah, we tend to get back to people in two weeks, or you know, we'll get back to you for interested or whatever. You know, they'll tell you. So you're not going to reach out too much there, right? I, I I wouldn't worry about that. I would worry about not reaching out enough. So, and and I think I said this on the last Q and A. There is a ton of companies out there that are open to ideas. Most of them don't have anything on their website. If you just go looking for companies that have something on their website, a portal or inventor submit here, now you're lumped in with all those people. I would still do that. I see no harm in it, providing whatever they wrote was for the, the agreement to submit. You don't want, if it says something like by submitting, you're agreeing, we'll pay you $2,000 and never a cent more for your idea. Well, don't freaking submit to them. And you'll see some of those weird ones sometimes or 
we will own your idea. You'll see a few of those. And to me, I'll still get some students uh, calling and going, what do you think, Andrew? I'm like, what is there to think about? They just said they think they're, now you can't really do that if you ask me, but it says they're going to own your idea if you send it to them. Is there anything more to think about? Why are we even talking? Yeah, because you don't. And, and, they, but, and you know why? Because they're really upset because they really like the company and they're really disappointed and they just want to double check. But just use common sense and just move on to the other ones. You know, now it's the reason why some people get upset about that is because most of the inventors that are working on their projects and most inventors are never reaching out to a single person ever. But the ones that you've been watching your show, you're reaching out and you're not reaching out to 20 or 30, you're reaching out to two or three. So then one of your three said that and you're getting all upset because now you got only two thirds of a chance to even send to somebody. But you got to reach out to more companies, guys. Inventors never reach out to enough companies. So, um, uh, Wally said, hi, Andrew. I, I asked you this before to add the Become a Professional Inventor book to Kindle outside the U.S. because I'm in Egypt and I tried to purchase it from Kindle, but it's not available. So, yeah, okay. I... See right now, um, I am going to go to Amazon and see if it's a, just an Egypt thing. Um, I'm a professional inventor, and let's see, let's see if it shows for me as available. It shows available on Kindle in the U.S. So yeah, I would have been shocked if Steve and myself didn't make that available. Now I lost the chat screen. Where the heck did that go? Okay. All right. Sorry, guys. Oh, there we go. Here it is. All right. Yeah. So, um, Waleed, um, it is available on Kindle. Why that's not available on Kindle in Egypt? I'm sorry. That really sucks. Um, uh, I, I would want to... I don't see why. That doesn't make any sense. It's Kindle is a perfect medium for being available around the world. So I'm going to drop my partner, Stephen Key, an email and say, I have a, an inventor in Egypt and he wants to buy a professional inventor. It's available on Kindle in the US, which, you know, and, and best way people internationally can buy books because it's a pain in a lot of countries to get books mailed. I know it's just get on Kindle. And he says not on Kindle. Um, so Waleed, if you could drop me an email at Andrew at InventRight so then I can personally follow up with you and let you know um, what the deal is there. But also before you do that, go on there and just make sure it's not showing Kindle or just search Kindle. Maybe you just have to do it a different search or something. So please double check before you assume that. Um, and then if not, drop me an email at Andrew at InventRight.com. Okay. Um, Okay. Uh, hey, Andrew, J. Bell here. What's the quickest the quickest you've seen in the average time for a newly licensed product to get on the shelves? So I would say the quickest is usually those DRTV guys, the infomercial guys. Um, the quickest I've seen, you know, the average, so I'm going to talk about the negotiation time and then also how quickly it gets on the shelves. I'm going to answer both. So most negotiations, which means the initial, when you initially get interest to signing the contract, 
with our students. Usually from that time you get interest, it, they, it goes on for about a month to two and a half months. I would err more on the side of a month and a half to two months. Um, people are like, oh, why they're interested? Why don't they just sign? Well, they need to go get some quotes in China for manufacturing. Sally's on vacation. They need to get together. They only have a meeting every two weeks. There's a lot of reasons why it takes, I would say on average, a month to two and a half months. Um, and we have some brutal deals we've seen where they just dragged and dragged and dragged and it went like 10 months. And, or I have some students that have done deals where the company kind of like, they kind of put on a whole little bit and it was like a year and a half, two years. Um, that's very unusual, but the company's still interested and they just said, we got to put a hold on it. We're still interested. And really at that point, you should just shop it out to everybody else. And, and, but if you can't do a deal, well then keep it, let them keep it on hold and come back. We've had students do deals like that, but average it's, it's a, it's a month to two and a half months. So, so um, so that's the kind of a bit of the timeline. And now it's not unusual. Don't think initial interest is a closed deal. It's, it's not unusual for one of our students to get interest from three or four or five companies out of the 30 they reached out to. But getting initial interest and being in a done deal are two completely different things, right? And deals fall through all the time. Well, they're kind of talking to them a little bit and you know, there's that, oh, no, we, we, we decided we're not going to move forward with this. Or, or we just, they're just kind of investigating, you know, so that's very normal. Um, so don't think that every time you get interest, it'll be one to two and a half months and you'll have a done deal every time because that's not the case. Um, so um, quickest to the store shelves. I don't know that um, exactly. So I don't I can't quote a specific. I know that we had one student in 22 years where they signed the deal within two days. And I remember another student, it was two weeks those are complete and total anomalies. 10 months, a year, that's an anomaly as well. Um, less, like I said, you know, a month, two and a half months, those, that's more normal, three months maybe um, going back and forth for the signing of the deal. Um, because our students signed the deal, I'm not like personally uh, tracking like how long it took to then hit the market. Um, but so I think rather than saying what's the quickest, which I could cite some anomaly, I think I want to set expectations. And I, I've got a very accurate answer for you guys here. Um, I would say expect after you sign the deal, I've seen um, I, I, what I can say is I've seen deals done and then the product will hit the market in three months or six months or something like that. But I would say the vast majority of the time it's going to be nine months to a year before the product hits the market, even more right now with COVID. We, during COVID, we've had more students than ever close licensing deals, but it's taking the companies longer to bring it to market because you guys are aware there's supply chain issues. They're getting charged like $20,000, $24,000. I talked to a guy at SuperZoo for a shipping container when it used to be four or 5,000. So it's taking them longer to launch that new product. I mean, if they're already having problems getting distribution, getting manufacturing for products they already have, they now need to get this new product up and running. Now, our students get a little frustrated with it, but it's like, hey, so you signed the deal. You got a deal done. You're moving, licensing other products. You're doing other things in your life. So what? So if it, so what if it takes a year and a half before the product hits the store shelves? It's none of your work. It's all their work at that point. Yes, it would be really nice if every time 
three to six months after you do the deal, it hits the store shelves. But some products are more complicated than that. Um, you know, and th there's no way that's ever going to happen. They need to put things into production. These are big companies. And to, to illustrate the best way is they're slow, but once they, and they're not, they're not all slow. Some of them are very fast, but some of them are slow. But once it gets into the machine, it takes a while to get worked into the machine with the, with the sales rep and the manufacturing and the distribution and then this department and that department. But once it's part of that machine, poof, just they're getting it to market way faster than you ever could. And they're selling way more, way faster than you ever could. Sometimes people go, well, you know, Andrew, that's, I, I can't wait like a, a year for it to hit the market. And I'm like, so what's your other option? Well, I'm going to sell it myself. It's like, okay, it's probably going to be two or three years before you're going to see a dime there because you're going to pour all your money into creating distribution channels from scratch, all these employees doing all these things. And it's going to be way longer before you see money because you're not going to be profitable for quite some time, you know? And if you can even get a, a retailer to talk to you as a one product, one SKU company, which most of them never will, they don't want to do that. They want to talk to that big company you license to that they already have eight products with. So like I always explain, like just imagine you're the buyer for a major retailer and every, let's say you have, um, 100,000 products, 80,000 products. You want 80,000 vendors? Hell no. There's no way they can manage that. So they love vendors that have 10 products, 50 products, five products, you know, but they don't like vendors that have one product. If it's a big enough hit and it's huge, they'll deal with it, but they'll kick you to the curb eventually if you don't come up with a product line usually. And people have, some people have pulled it off. It's very, very hard. Most people fall flat on their face. It's very, very hard. But I have talked to people that have succeeded doing that. And that's very impressive. Um, but so when anybody says to me, like, well, I don't want to wait till I'm making money, like they want to make a million dollars overnight. I'm like, well, selling it yourself isn't going to do that. You're not going to get any money. So you'll get money quicker with licensing than you will any other way. And it will actually be money you can put in your pocket because you're not you're not having to feed money back into the company. They're doing that, but you don't have to do that. You're going to get whatever royalty you agreed upon. So um, I love that question, Jay Bell, you know, how long before it gets on the store shelves? I would say pretty much count in most cases a year over before it hits the shelf. I've seen plenty of cases where it is six months or eight months or something like that. And there are companies that do it that quick. Um, I would say one of them is these DRTV infomercial companies, but it's very hard to do a deal with them. They pick very few of the ideas they see. Um, you're going to license a lot more products outside of their um, we get, I said, way I should say it is we have more students licensing to non DRT because there's more deals done there. And yes, it takes them longer to launch it, but, um, they also do DRTV companies. They do tests and quite often those fail. So you, it's when they license it, it's not really a license. I'll hand it right back to you if it doesn't do well, of course. But, um, so the Corian said, I couldn't find a licensee for my idea. Could I try to venture it and build up some sales numbers, which might cost them to reconsider? So, yeah, I don't. When you say you couldn't find the licensee, I, I think I think what you're saying is you you made a list, you reached out to them, but nobody showed interest. I'm going to assume that's the case. Um, so, uh, and yes, you could do that, or you could go. What's my business model? am I going to mortgage my house and home? Am I going to spend all my money to um, 
create tooling and manufacture this. I talked to an inventor that, that did that. I, I met him at the super zoo and he was, he had tried to license his product. He wasn't successful. Um, and he then decided to make it and sell it himself. It's been years and years has passed. He's like, Andrew, this has been so painful. I, I, and now he was at super zoo wanting to license it. And he got a beautiful product, but, and there's some benefit in having a beautiful product, the physical product that he was selling almost none. He wasn't selling any of them or very few. And, you know, that could manufacturer could look, oh, you worked out some of the manufacturing, but the product wasn't that complicated. I think the manufacturer could have worked that out. So, but they will now, if he says, I've been trying to sell this for all these years and they say, what are your sales? And he says, oh, I sold a thousand units or 2000 units. I ain't impressing anybody. That could hurt you rather than help you, actually. So, you know, people liking your product on Facebook means nothing. It means less than nothing. It means nothing. And you shouldn't be publicly exposing your product if you haven't been selling it already anyway. Um, and selling a couple hundred units or a thousand units ain't going to press anybody. It's not going to help you do the licensing. It'll actually hurt you. Now, if it's a product where there's all sorts of difficulties and you figure out and solve those difficulties, I think the more... A very level-headed approach, which would be a very easy way to do this, Corian, is to just simply, well, first of all, go back and go, were there companies I missed? And I don't know if you didn't, you're not an event rights student. So my guess is you're missing a ton of companies. That's my guess. You didn't look at it right. You didn't reach out to 20 or 30 companies, and you probably weren't reaching out to some of the right companies. And there might be more companies. Now, but let's assume you did reach out to all the right companies, which is a possibility. You, I'm going to tell you to do what our, I tell our students to do. I go, and you get like non-specific news, not at this time, not a right match for us. And, and, and you want to try to get specific answers when you can. So if five companies said it won't work because of this, and you're like, oh, I can't fix that. You know, they're right. Well, you're done with that project. But that's not what usually happens. Usually you get these non-specific no's, not a right match for us, not at this time. And they won't get back to you with the details because they're busy. And I understand that you, they don't, you don't deserve that from them. They, they don't have to give that to you. Some, some marketing managers, they're worried if they get into it with you, then you're going to go back and forth in this email channel. You're going to be a giant time suck for them. That's why they don't want to get into details. So, but you should try whenever you can to see if there's maybe your marketing materials suck. Go back and look at your marketing materials. Most of the time when I outside invent, right, their marketing materials are okay to horrendous. There, I would say 5% of students I see, not students, but inventors I see outside of InventRight, the sell sheet is good enough. The marketing piece is good enough. So if the marketing needs some help, then you need to go back to all those companies and go, you know, my presentation wasn't clear. Can you take 30 seconds to look at this and resend it? Um, the other thing you can do is if the marketing is good and you reached out to all the companies and you did it the right way, and they all said no. Now, maybe another thing you're doing is they just didn't respond to you and you think you're done. If you didn't get a no, you're not done. So these are all things that, but let's assume you did all those things right. Simply reach out to all of them six months later. Send the same freaking thing. You don't need to say, I sent this to you before, blah, blah, blah. Just send it. I guess students slicing stuff all the time that way. So people are like, why would that work, Andrew? Well, they're busy. So you get somebody, they're inundated with email. They got three different projects they're working on. They looked at it real quick, or they didn't because they're so busy, but they looked at it real quick, let's say. And they're like, oh, this is interesting. I don't still have time for this. Moving on. Didn't even reply to you. 
or maybe they reply to you, not a right match, not this time or something like that. Usually not a right, or not a right match. And you reach out to those same 30 companies and you're going to hit maybe a marketing manager or two where now this next time, six months later, most inventors never do this. Six months later, their um, manager just said two weeks earlier, we need new products. Okay. And now you hit them just luck kind of timing. It's not luck because you bother to reach out when almost no other inventor would ever do that. You're like, well, I got to know. Why would I do that? Now, if they say no and here's why and you can't fix that, then you're done. But if it don't resend to those, but most of them give you non-specific no's. So there is a huge shift for all of you that every single one of you can benefit from. Um, and most of you would never try. So then what you could do is not go, well, now I'm going to mortgage my house and home. I'm going to like work weekends, not spend time with my kids, do all this stuff to now try to sell this product myself. And you'll probably be where most inventors are with a garage full of stuff. And you'll just be like, I had no idea it costs this much because it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars just to get started with sometimes a, a 20 cent product. It's you have no idea what it costs to get started. It's crazy. Now, that doesn't mean you couldn't make a few in your garage and have a website nobody visits and put it up on Etsy or something or put it on eBay or try to spend tons of time learning how to get something on Amazon, spend a ton of money there. Then nobody sees it because you don't know what you're doing there. So I'm not trying to discourage people from venturing. I think it's, it's starting your own business, selling a product yourself is a legitimate way of making money. Most creative people don't want to do it when they realize what's involved. So, um, Corian, if you said, well, my business model is licensing because I want to spend time with my kids. I don't want to spend all that money. I don't want to risk all that money. I don't have the time besides my job or my business or whatever. And I don't want to run a business. Well, then go, this is my business model. I'm going to work on licensing another product or two. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to I'm going to give these companies a little bit of a rest. I'm going to blast it back out to them. You can file another provisional for another 75 bucks if you want. And I'm going to blast it out to them six months later. And maybe I'll just get lucky with the timing. Um, but if you do that six months later and your sell sheet still sucks and you're still approaching the wrong companies, well, then that's not a good strategy. So you got to make sure your, your marketing materials are great. Like I said, 95 percent of the inventors I talk outside of InventRight, they're either just very okay, which is not good enough, or terrible, or just pretty bad. There's just a lot of stuff wrong. Where if I was a marketing manager, I'd be like, okay. It just looks so unprofessional, or um, the benefits just aren't clear. They don't have time to go back and forth with you to figure it out. They're they're not your your your, your parents or your grandma or whatever. They don't have time for that. It's business. And they just don't have time for it. And um, so um, do the laptop test, put it in front of somebody you've never shown it to before and stand behind the computer and look to see if they're confused and do not answer any of their questions. And that laptop test only works with somebody you've never talked to about it before and hear the questions. And when they ask you questions, say nothing. So make sure your marketing materials are good. Um, it's a very much a one-on-one -on -one thing with our students and our, our coach, their coach to really analyze the product and figure out where their hit list of companies is. So that's not something I can give you an easy fix on, like with your presentation, just by looking at somebody in the eyes and they're looking on your computer and you're standing behind the computer to see if they're confused and to see if they can state, well, I get it. It does this. Oh, that's cool. Or they're like, um, so does it make this easier? 
So and they start asking questions or you just see the confusion on their face. And it took them like two minutes. Remember I said they need to get it in six to 10 seconds. And it took them like two minutes and they're just sitting here and you're like, I, I can't, you know, tell, tell me what you think it is. Tell me what you, what your thoughts are. Just think out loud. And you're like, oh crap, this isn't good enough. In that case, Corian, and this is a great tip for everybody. Don't hesitate for a millisecond to fix it and push it back out to all the same companies you sent it to. They won't yell at you. It's okay. Just say, my marketing was off on this. Can you take 10 seconds to tell me if this is something you want to license? I improve my marketing materials. And just say that. So these are great questions, guys. And um, uh, so Daniel said, if a product is not patentable, can you still get a PPA? So the only people that tell you can really evaluate if it's patentable as a patent office, whether or not they're going to grant those claims. So you'll see what I'm getting at here. Um, maybe you had a patent attorney. I've talked to inventors with patent attorneys that says it's not patentable. And I looked at it and I'm like, bullshit. It's, it's totally patentable. You, what about this? What about that? And, and, and then maybe the inventor didn't share enough with the attorney where they made that assumption. So with the provisional patent application, it's, you write it yourself. You can have an attorney write it too, but we have software called Smart IP. It helps our students and non-students write provisional patents. And it's 75 bucks, okay? And so there is legally nothing wrong with filing the patent and saying, this is what I'm going to try to get. I want, and you're talking about the hinge. You're talking about how it moves. You're talking about this or that. And some of it may be a stretch. There's nothing legally wrong with getting filing for a provisional patent because a provisional patent is not a patent. It's just a placeholder. It's a bookmark in time saying, this is what I'm going to try to get. So if I later file a full utility patent, I can reference and get that priority date, right? So it's fully and totally okay to file a provision going, I, I think I can get this. And you're like, I don't know, but I think I get this. And you can legally say on your sell sheet, patent pending. You don't have to say provisional patent pending. You can say patent pending. Gives that perceived protection of, you know, it's perceived protection. It's an actual protection because a provisional patent and attorneys, there's a reason why it's PPA, provisional patent application. And attorneys are right when they're very anal about this. And they say, it's not a provisional patent. It's a provisional patent application. But you can legally say patent pending. So absolutely, you can file a provisional patent on something that, because all patents are up to interpretation. And it's the patent office's job to determine if they're going to give you any sort of claims on any part of it. And one thing I'll say is you can always get a patent on everything. If, if your claim is so specific, it, it can be completely useless as far as protection goes. But the patent office will go, oh, sure, you can have that. And, and this is this is not a good example because you don't patent colors. But if you said it's a purple pencil with pink polka dots, exactly 2.5 millimeters in diameter. And this is what I'm going to get a patent on. And it's not a realistic example. But um, and well, if, what if they make it 2.6 millimeters in diameter? What if they make it a different color? So that's a, and you don't patent colors. But I'm just giving you the example that if you're so specific in what you're protecting, your patent is useless, but they will give it to you. So you can always get a useless patent on something. So, and so that's always also why you can legally file a provisional patent for 75 bucks and legally say patent pending. And it's a beautiful thing. It really is. So I love that. I think, I think I'm 
doing a good job of providing really good answers to your questions because you guys are asking great questions. And I love that they're benefiting everybody and not just the person asking them because I, I guarantee you that um, a lot of these um, are things that everybody else is thinking about too. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Brandon said, Andrew, can you connect with me on LinkedIn? Um, and thanks for the knowledge. Absolutely. I, I, the only people I don't let into my LinkedIn is, um, is invention promotion companies because they're terrible. Um, but everybody else, any inventor, anybody that I will add you to my LinkedIn network, which is the same approach you guys should take. You want to really build your network because then the more people you have, all their connections are now all your secondary connections. So, um, Brandon, if you if you invite me, I will add you, and that goes as far as all of all of you guys as well. Um, let's see, am I lost track? Uh, Okay, so Spine, you said, so they were a member and their membership ran up. Uh, I don't know, I would, I don't know your name, so I don't know if you were an academy group coaching student or a one-on-one coaching student. But he said, I've completed my PPA. Tell me what are the steps to complete my goal. So, yeah, I mean, I can make it really simple. Um, you've got, you need your PPA, and you need your uh, sell sheet or a video sell sheet so a company can understand your product in six to 10 seconds, and it needs to be good. And then you need your list of companies. So you need, and if you can have 20 or 30, I have people in Kitchen Gadgets, I'm like, they have 50, you know? Now, sometimes it won't be 20 or 30. But when you have a coach guiding you, you know, almost always it is for most industries. Sometimes it'll only be 12, but if most inventors that are our students are left to their own devices, they'll, they'll, they'll make this anemic list. It's always like two to five at most ever. Um, rarely is it a big list. Sometimes people have been watching YouTube show and they'll come on with the coach and they will have a big list. And the coach is like, okay, some of these are off or sometimes they'll be like, oh yeah, this is a great list. Other times they'll be like, some of these are off. Some of these are spot on, but then you're missing all these types of companies, you know, that sort of thing. So you need a sell sheet or video sell sheet, need your list of companies, need to have followed your provisional. You need to uh, get on LinkedIn and start inviting uh, marketing managers for these companies on your LinkedIn. And then you need to just start picking up the phone and call. Don't sit around waiting for them to respond on LinkedIn. Try to get a hold of them on the phone as well and then send them your sell sheet. So if I wanted to boil it down to the very, very simplest, those are the most important things. There's all sorts of little things that come into play and questions and what they said this, what do I say here and all that. But that would be the basics. Start pushing it out um, to companies so you can accomplish your goal. Um, So, and and if you're interested in renewing, I, I don't, I'm a little confused. I'm thinking maybe you're a group coaching student and you're not a one-on-one student, but all our students reach out to companies. So drop me an email at Andrew and Eventwright and let me know what happened there because I, 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 you must be a group coaching student because the one-on-one students, they are all reaching out to companies. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, Robert said, uh, saw your video recommending submitting to only one DRTV company at a time. DRTV is like infomercial guys. 
I would never recommend that for any industry except for DRTV. If you got 30 companies, boom, all out the same time to 30 companies. You don't want to submit to one, sit around waiting. Take freaking forever. You'll you'll it will it will not happen. But with the DRTV, they're really weird. They're like, oh, do who'd you show it to over there and over there? And because they're notorious for knocking each other off, some of them, not all of them, of course. So um I I I that what I'm saying is they really like it when you do one at a time. And they're really only five or six major DRTV companies. The other ones are just kind of feeder companies. They like find people, they maybe test a little bit, then they try to resell the license to the bigger um, SCNDV company. So it's, it's a practical approach. It'll work for DRTV because there's so few of them. Um, and the reason why is they just get, they want something so unique nobody else has seen. And so I would put your top choice as your first one and go from there. They don't always ask. Most of the time they don't. But um, And that's only for DRTV guys. Guys do not do one at a time. Shotgun blast. Do them all. So that's a good question. Thank you, Robert. Uh, we got to just uh, maybe for one or two more. Uh, Spencer said, hey, Andrew, thanks again. Would you say licensing designs and art are easier level of diff?" Or easier, or an easier level of difficulty. So, yeah, we had we had this one student, Joan, and she she's licensed like I don't know eighty plus pieces of her artwork. So it's a little bit different there. So she's licensing her artwork to then go on companies' products. So she's observing products that have nice artwork, and then she's approaching them and saying, "I would like to license you my artwork to put on the product." So you know, it's like screen printed on there, or it's printed on there, something like that. So. Um, that's not something we talk about quite often, but we've guided students to do that. Um, do I find that to be easier? I think that with that, it's about making a relationship and then maintaining it. So I don't think it's easier or harder. I mean, the question is, how good of an artist are you? How beautiful are your designs? Are you approaching companies that your types of designs are a right match for them? You want to do that? Um, I obviously with um, with Joan, she has licensed so many making those relationships. She just keeps showing them more and more and more. And then she tries to add to her list of ones that are like, yeah, we want designs to put on our products. And some of those are because it's like a product and then there's five SKUs. So a SKU is a stop keeping unit. So it might be the same product, but five different colors or five different designs. So one of the reasons why she's done so many, I'm sure it's probably way over 80 at this point, is because it might be one product with five designs. And she, but she's licensed five different designs. She gets paid on everyone. So um, I wouldn't say that we have massive amounts of students doing that, but it's totally doable. And most of you listening probably aren't trying to license your artwork for use on products. Um, I think it's a great thing to do, and I, I don't think it's very very difficult. Now, if you're if you think if you just just like with inventions, if you think you're a great artist but your artwork isn't really good, or it's so specific that you don't have a bunch of companies where it would be a right match for for their types of products, well, then it might you might feel like it's harder. Where Joan has these beautiful designs and she matches them up perfectly with the right companies, and she's like, oh no, it's not that hard, Andrew. I make these relationships, I keep them showing new designs. It's fun. So I think your level of difficulty might have to do with how well you're doing that sort of thing. So, but that's, that was an interesting question. Um, uh, Mariana, uh, a company on my list appears to only have open innovation for, that means accepting product ideas from the outside. 
from existing employees. So that's not really open innovation. Should I email first asking if they accept outside product submissions or shoot or shoot my something in the same email? Or shoot you no, you should always ask if they're okay. Don't just shoot the submission in email. Very unprofessional. Don't just send off your submission. Um, companies can get upset about that. You really want to ask permission and then send it. So yeah, ask permission. You got nothing, nothing to lose. Um, uh, okay, Inventor Steve, hi Andrew. Thanks for doing these. I've watched for over, I've watched over twenty. Oh wow, that's great. Over twenty of the live Q and A's, or I wonder twenty of their YouTube videos. I, I think I've, I've done over twenty, so that's great. Can you advise regarding renewable energy devices? Um. What I can say is, and I'm, I'm not talking about you, Steve, but I might be, I don't know. I don't know if we've talked before or what your inventions are. A percentage of energy inventors are nut jobs. Um, you know, when I get a guy, I think I've talked about this before in the, the YouTube show. So you guys need to know this. So you have some energy related invention, realize that the marketing managers for companies doing these types of products have probably been approached by nutty people. So, um, you know, an inventor saying, I've talked to my fair share of them. Well, I have this uh, uh, device I've created. I can make, usually they, they didn't really do it, but they, I can make a car run on a liter of gas for a year. You know, um, when I get people that talk to me like that, I ask them what their background is and I, I just start breaking it down. And I'm, I just try to, because I don't want somebody that's wacky as an invent right student. You know, I don't need somebody that's delusional and, um, thinks the government's after them, or it's more positive, but thinks they have a device that, you know, we won't need oil anymore, you know, instantly overnight, you know, but they've done, and I ask about the research and they're like, I know it'll work. I know it'll work. You know? And it's like, it's like, okay. So that long ramble is basically to say some people are going to think you're nuts. So if it's, if it's a down to earth device, there's some energy devices that are just down earth. And it's like, oh, that's practical. It'll use a little less energy than this over here. But then there's some that is pie in the sky. And if it's pie in the sky and you do have something figured out or you want them to invest more money in to figure it out, just think like you're the marketing manager on the other side and go, how might they think I'm a little off here? Like you want to state that you have the data or you have this or that, your marketing presentation needs to be very clear and look good and look professional. So don't let them put you, first tip is don't let them put you into that category. So, you know, some renewable energy things, like it's such a big, it's like they have to launch, like you have to change whole systems and everything. And other things, it's like, oh, we're going to change it over here. So quite often with those types of products, you can do the big giant thing or, oh, but could it be applied to this product over here where it help? You can show the technology working and it's an easier to implement version or application. And then you can even get to pay for patents for that, which will cover you for all the big, big thinking stuff, which maybe even licensed to a different company because it's not going to hurt this one company. You sold this one device with it for this one application to. And, and, and so then in, you can make that work. So the answer is, is figure out what is the easiest to implement version of it that's going to require less engineering, less work, going to make sense to the consumer at a reasonable price point sooner rather than later. And if you're going for the pie in the sky, I'm going to make bazillions of dollars and this is going to change the world type of product. 
figure out how you can show them that the technology works with something simple and then go big. And maybe some of you have that thing and you're not that wacky inventor and you are a genius and you have come up with that sort of thing. But even then I would recommend, how can you bring it down on a very simple level with a very simple product can be easier to implement to prove the technology and then you can go bigger with it. So, um, Yeah, well, I'm sorry. I didn't see you typed. You typed four more things there, Steve. So hopefully you're not um, one of the those those wacky ones. Notice there are hundred potentially similar paths. Looks like you've done a lot of research. Um, extend the range. So the question is, do you have a real invention or do you just have a concept? And how technically capable of you are of figuring this out? So is a concept required? I do only I do only have theory drawings and links to existing tech. That's tough. So you might be just this kind of creative guy. You're good at doing research, but this isn't your area of expertise. So you have a theory drawings and links to existing tech. So if you can say, well, that works over there, and this is how I changed it, then you're a true inventor, and we're just going to change it like this. And you're fairly certain that it would work, or they would be. But if they're like. If it's going to take hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars for them to research to prove, or you can't prove it, um, then that's a really difficult project, you know, but I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't work on it. It doesn't sound like you're one of the wacky ones. Um, but I, that's one area that, man, I, some people think like, oh, Andrew, you like your business, you're coaching men or inventors. You must get a lot of crazy people. No, we scare people away with shows like this, because we're talking about all this practical, boring stuff that's going to help you get your product licensed. And the people that think they are brilliant and have the billion dollar idea and they want to make a billion dollars overnight with no effort, they're not attracted to us. And I love it because they don't call us. But a few slip through the cracks, um, definitely. But I, I love that our YouTube show is a filter for people that really have a work ethic and want to do some work. And yeah, licensing is like one thousandth the amount of work as starting your own business and selling it, but it's still work. It's that, and we break it down such a simple level. You don't need to, you can spend two to six hours a week. You can license products. You don't need to mortgage your house and home. And those are all great, but it's not, oh, I have an idea and I'll just listen to one invent right Q and A with Andrew. And now I know how to license my product. You know, it's and it's and even when you know the basics of what to do, you got to put the work in every week. So one thing that I'll leave you guys with, which I say often, if I had an event rights student that this really brilliant idea and but they kind of half assed the work. And I had this other student eh, kind of so so idea, but it kind of makes sense. Like, I, you'd be surprised what your students have licensed. And they had a work ethic and they just they did not push until they got no's from all their potential licensees. And then they pushed it out six months later, worked on another project, just kept all the irons in the fire, which is what most inventors never do. Most inventors, they file patents, make prototypes. They never push their products in front of companies so they can see them. Nothing will ever happen that way. But that inventor with the so-so idea that really pushes, you do not need to have be brilliant. The, the companies aren't that creative. That inventor will license way before the guy with the great idea. He pushed out the 10 companies. Some, some didn't say no, so he just gave up on those and he interacted with a few and, you know, he just half-assed it. And that is half-assing it. Um, and so uh, it's licensing is more about your work ethic, ethic that is the product. It's not massive amounts of work, 
but you have to be consistent and you have to keep pushing. And am I saying you're going to license a lump of coal? Absolutely not. It, it needs to make sense. But if you have a clear marketing presentation, you could have 29 companies say no and one shows interest and licenses it. And we see that all the time. So, um, all right. So guys, uh, just this is the part where I ask a favor of you guys. And so I spent a whole hour answering your questions. So if you could, if you're not subscribed to the YouTube show, click on the subscribe button. If you want to say thank you, that's where you say thank you to me. I'd love to get to 80,000 subscribers. We're at about 51,000, something like that. I haven't looked in a little bit um, within the next eight months. If you could help me do that. And then just watch all YouTube videos. There's not, we're not like pitching our course and stuff in there. You should be able to watch those in a relaxed Yeah, YouTube has their own videos that pop up, the advertisements and stuff. I know because I just, I'm a big YouTube fan as well as being a YouTube content creator. And I just like, I watch YouTube every night on different things I'm interested in. And I love it. I think it's great. And so, um, and I'm as big of a fan as hopefully you are of, of me watching this, watching other people do live streams and do their videos. And I always kind of, I like, I like all their videos. I don't just watch the video. I like it. So if you can like it and you could subscribe, um, that would be great. That's how you can say thank you to me and just tell people about us. And, uh, and I remind everybody to take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.